Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, as we read verses 3 through 10. Hear now the word of God. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him for his help. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help today, that we would hear your word speak truly, and that we would receive what you have to say with sensitive and tender hearts. Lord, make us teachable and ready by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your help today to receive your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Originally, I had uh, planned to preach verses 2 to 5, and then as a separate sermon, preach verses 6 to 10. But then as I was looking more closely, I, I became convinced that these ideas are very closely wedded together and that they actually do belong together in the same passage, in the same message. Because in this passage, you have discontentment and false teaching, and they coincide together. And it's not just that it, it, it just happens that false teaching and discontentment are happening together. They are causative uh, with one another. Uh, they're bound up with each other. The fact that uh, that discontentment is taking place and false teaching are taking place, that is not a coincidence. Those things are here because of one another. So you have, um, often you have this false teaching, as Paul so often uh, points out to us, that it doesn't just come from itself, but it, it emerges from a sin that's under the sin, a sin that gives rise to the sin. And so this false teaching, in other words, does not exist for its own sake. It is happening, it's being delivered, it's being digested because there is a public that is hungry for it. And Paul is, is speaking about contentment here because, because of what he sees that is driving the false teachers. In verses 2 to 5, he says that divisive people introduce falsehoods into the church, and then he talks about why. He says, because they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So, so Paul is almost giving this spiritual profile of the false teachers, what it is that drives them, what it is that motivates them. And, and, and first he says, they're the types to fight and argue. He says, they're the types to fight and argue. And what that does is it feeds a hard attitude that craves more, wants more, picks fights, and creates friction between people. So there's this mindset of, 
of wanting to have for yourself, wanting to have your own way, wanting to win a fight, wanting to overcome someone else, uh, wanting to dominate. And that desire bleeds over into your spiritual life. So these practical, these practical ways that we think and talk and treat others should not be sequestered from the life of the soul. They are absolutely connected. See, what's in here comes out in how we treat other people. It emerges from in here. And so if we feed contentiousness, if we feed argumentativeness, if we feed negativity and, and conflict into our own souls, those will come out. We're going to reap what we've been sowing in our own hearts. And, and Paul has to address this, these contentious activities and, and attitudes because they're creating an environment where false teaching is just thriving. Because there is something fleshly, there's something very, I did it my way, about their heart attitude. And so here's what's going on then. Paul is, has pinpointed the problem of envy. Right? People are preaching what people want to hear. They're preaching what there's a demand for. They're, they're, they're peddling things that, that appeal to people's preferences Things that appeal to people's desires. In other words, they found their customer, if you will. And, and it's a cu consumer through and through. And they're, they're using these people because they want to get something from them. They want to, to use the church so they can gain an advantage, some sort of upper hand. And Paul seems to step in at this moment and say, what we need is a good old-fashioned dose of contentment. If these, if these men could be more contented, the church would be healthier and immune to their message. You know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, during the summertime, not that I've had to do this around my house. I don't exactly have woods around my house. But if you live in an area, and I suspect many of you do, you live in an area where your house is maybe surrounded by trees or maybe there's a forested area around your house, you're thinking even now, what will I do this summer if forest fires come near? And some of you, this last summer, got to put those things into practice uh, much closer than you ever would have wanted. Well, what, what, what does somebody typically do if they, they say, hey, I'm staying in my house no matter what? What will they do if they hear that there's a fire coming? Well, they'll soak everything. They'll soak their home in water. Uh, if they have time, they'll dig fire lines around the house. They'll try to remove as much as they can so that the fire doesn't have a way of getting in. In other words, they do everything they can to repel the flames that are coming closer to their home. You know, if you know something is coming, then you prepare for what's coming, and you do that by clearing out everything else. Well, Paul says, look, the false teaching is coming. And Paul says that this fire is feeding on the kindling of discontentment. And so Paul says, look, we've got to address the issue of contentment, or the flames will just tear through this place when they come. And Think of discontentment here, in other words, as the fuel that allows the fire of the false teachers to burn. It, it, it is the environment in which this flourishes. So you have discontentment, you have envy, you have a desire for more. It's not only why the false teachers exist, it's why they thrive. You know, it's one thing for somebody to come with a false message. It's another, it's another thing for us to be ready to hear them and to be eager to latch on to what they have to say. You know, the one is their sin but then the other is ours. Um, and this is very relevant today because we live in a materialistic society. This is, it's what makes our economy turn. It's what makes the world go round. And if someone comes to you claiming that God 
is a giant sky genie. And if you only do and say the right things and rub the lamp, then he's going to give you every material thing that you could ever want if you would just speak it or claim it. Well, a discontented society is going to be primed and ready to hear that. Right? You are speaking their language. You are giving the people what they want. Of course they're going to listen to this. And so it's imperative for us as the church to imbibe this message of contentment that Paul is delivering here. But that requires getting at the heart. It requires getting at the heart so that the sin that's under the sin can actually be addressed. And so that's what Paul is doing here. He's getting to the heart of things and making this brief but powerful case that God's people ought to live with contentment and not restlessness and envy. And so this morning, let's see what God has to say about this important topic. I want to look at it under three headings, the, the nature of contentment, the necessity of contentment, and then the secret of contentment. So the nature of contentment, the necessity of contentment, the secret of contentment. It makes sense for us to start with the nature of contentment. You really can't know what you're talking about unless you define it. And uh, you know what? After telling us about these people who are filled with envy, who are, are seeking to use God so that they can advance in the world and personally gain financially from God's people, Paul tells us a different way. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But what's contentment? Well, Paul assumes it, right? This is an interesting thing. He doesn't really set out to define it. He assumes it, but he also elaborates on it. And and yet we find this subject comes up repeatedly in both this letter. Uh, contentment comes up again in the book of Philippians. We find that he hits this theme more than once because it's so important to him. Uh, I think, again, you start to see that he's, he's heading off serious theological problems by getting at the heart of the listener so that they're driven by something other than just what else can I get from God? What else can I get from religion, right? He wants this church to treasure contentment. Uh, when I looked for my, my favorite definition of contentment, I actually found it from Jeremiah Burroughs. I don't know how often um, many of you spend time reading the Puritans, but you find some really, really thoughtful, meaty material by reading the Puritans. And, and Jeremiah Burroughs is one of the best, and, and he defines contentment this way. Listen closely. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's such a good, strong uh, definition. Now, I'm going to go through it again, so if you missed it, that's all right. But I, I just want to open that up just a little bit and just work through this in pieces because before we talk about the next point, we have to know what we mean when we're talking about contentment. Wouldn't that be sort of sloppy of me to just go right to the, the necessity of contentment without us being sure what we're even talking about here. Burroughs says first that contentment is inward. First he says it's inward, right? In other words, you know, it's one thing to seem calm and collected, to put on a, a good show for people. It's another thing to actually have a heart that matches what people see on the outside. And so real contentment is something that takes place at the level of the heart. It takes place inside of us, and it's something other people don't know if we actually have it, right? It's, it's only you who knows whether you're contented, you and the Lord. Second, though, he says contentment is gracious. And so in other words, he's saying 
it's not rooted in circumstances and it's not rooted in our willpower. It's rooted in God's grace and what God in Christ has done for us, right? It's gracious. Third, he, he tells us that contentment delights in God and what God brings our way. Um, it finds joy and good in what God brings to us, and right? And sometimes that's really difficult. It's really easy to talk about delighting and rejoicing in God's providence when good things are happening to us, right? It's very easy for us to praise God and, and say good things about the Lord when everything's going exactly the way we want it to. And then it's one thing entirely when hard things happen. And in that moment, it is not always easy to remember what the hymn writer says. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Contentment delights in what God brings our way. Fourth, contentment recognizes the hand of God. Uh, I, I just touched on this just a moment ago, but uh, contentment means that we are thinking about and aware of the providence of God in our lives. We're thinking about the role that God plays in the events of our life. Contentment means recognizing God has ordered the events of our life, and he has ordered them for our spiritual good, and he's, he's ordered them for the glory of his name. Again, hard to, hard to accept when really difficult, trying things are coming our way, and yet God is sovereign. Fifth contentment means submitting to the hand of God. You know, it's one thing to see the hand of God. It's another thing to submit to it. Those are not the exact same thing, right? If our hearts are restless, if our hearts are angry, if our hearts are restful, resentful with God, I'm sorry, if our hearts are resentful towards God, then we haven't learned contentment. We might say, God brought it my way, but are we willing to say, and I accept it? Sixth, Burroughs reminds us that contentment means contentment in every situation. Um, many of us are ready to accept God's hand in some moments and not in others. We're selectively contented. Is that true of you? Are you selectively contented? Uh, we're contented when things seem good. Uh, we're, we're contented when things feel good. Uh, we're contented when we're healthy. We're contented when the bank account's all right and when the bills aren't rolling in like crazy, right? But then Paul's statement, though, is that he's learned to be contented in which situations? Every situation, all situations, right? That's what contentment is. So listen to Burroughs' definition again. He says, Content, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. You know, before we go on, I, I, do, I do, I wonder, do you want that for yourself? I hope you do. I, yeah, I'm preaching about it this morning, and even as I was working on this message, I found myself with a profound desire to experience this. Uh, I have, uh, uh, I've learned contentment in a greater measure than when I was younger, but I'm not consistent yet. <laughs> I am still selective. I want contentment in all situations. I hope you do as well. I can tell you this for certain. God's will is for you to be contented. God's will is for you to be contented. It's his expressed desire. It's exactly what he said he wants for you. Um, because this sort of hard attitude is a protection against all kinds of inroads that sin would make into your heart and into your life. And so this is the, the first point today. It's the nature of contentment. But second, we have the, the necessity of contentment. You know, the necessity of contentment, as Paul puts it here, is driven by reality itself. 
you know, we live in a day where people think that they can do, that if they can think it, that they can do it. We live in a sort of pliable version of reality. Um, there's this belief that we can somehow will reality to become as we want it to be. And in many ways, we have actually experienced this as uh, modern Americans in the West, right? Modern medicine has shown us that we can overcome all sorts of dangers in the world. Uh, we can create buildings that help us resist the elements and in some ways conquer the environment in which we live. Um, we have the internet, video games, and movies that show us images that first began in someone's imagination. And now we are at the point where the imagination really is the limit. And so children who grow up in this sort of environment may actually come to believe that the world really is ours to manipulate and ours to control. It's easier than ever to convince people that life is a matter of the will. And yet Paul brings his readers to this place where he says contentment is necessary because there is a such thing as reality. What do I mean? Well, look at verse 7. He, he says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says, why? And he uses that word for there. He says for, so that means there's an argue, argument being made. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. So in, in other words, whatever you want life to be like, one thing is sure. You came into this world through no choice of your own naked and helpless. And then as you get older, you do gain some mastery over your environment. You, you can do more than you could when you were maybe a little baby. So on the, on the bell curve of life, some of you are in your least helpless, most productive years that you will ever have. And then you start to move to the other side of the bell curve again. Uh, as time goes on, you become weaker. Illness presses upon you. You become helpless again, like when you were a child. Now again, it becomes necessary for others to, to help you, and you live at their mercy. And see, that's, this is the bend of the curve of life, and some of you are there now. Some of you have parents and family members who are there now. Uh, many of you have discovered that life itself is far more out of your control than you probably ever thought when you were younger. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you hit your 20s, you hit your 30s, you think, ah, life is my oyster for the taking. I can decide what, what happens in my world. I can be in control of it all. And contentment demands that we recognize our lack of control over ourselves, over our environments, over every aspect of life that we thought was ours to handle. These are things that are in the hands of God. They are things that are not in our hands. Life comes and life goes in a way that we can't ultimately control and we can't even manipulate. We are limited. We are finite. Are you willing to recognize your limitations? This is, this is part of being contented, is recognizing that you are the creature and he is the creator. Think of what Paul does here. Paul promotes a very minimalistic lifestyle, right? Think of what he says. Food and clothes. Food and clothes. Um... If we have what we need, we should be, that should be sufficient for Christian contentment. What is he doing here? He's encouraging a pilgrim mindset. Um, this mindset that wants to gather and get rich. How is it different from that? Well, it sees the world as his home. right? If you are, if you are set on accumulation, 
if you are set on building wealth, if you are set on and making your life about gathering things, then you don't see yourself as a pilgrim and you definitely see this world as your home and not as a land that you're just passing through. And Paul says, look, part of the secret of contentment is learning that you, what you really are and what all of this really is. He says, you and this life are a vapor. You're here for a little while. It's a mist. It doesn't endure. It dissolves on contact. It is so fleeting. The world is real. It's not imaginary, but it is also temporary and it is passing. It's no place to build your home. Jesus uses the example of a person building their house on the sand. That's what you're doing if you put your hope in the world. Contentment is necessary in part because reality itself demands it, right? This is my father's world. This is not my world. God moves in a mysterious way. We do not. One of the most impactful expressions of God's providence that I know of is in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question number 27. And it defines God's providence this way. Just listen to this and savor it. It's so, it's so good. Listen to how the catechism puts it. God's providence. What is God's providence? It's his almighty and ever-present ever power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. All right, and then, then the catechism does an application question. So the catechism says, okay, what does all of this mean? And here's the answer. Because of God's total providence, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. So what's the, what's the application here? We can be patient, we can be thankful, we can be confident, right? All of these things are outworkings of knowing that God is in control. See, we're born, we live, and we die, and all of it in God's world. We may have much, and we may have, have little. We may gain far more than we ever guessed we would, or we may live in deep poverty. This is our Father's world, not ours. So this is what makes contentment necessary. We ought to love and trust the creator because we have no ultimate control over how our life shakes out. We, we live, we work, we do our, our duty, we do our jobs. We take care of the responsibilities God has given to us. But when we live with discontentment, we are wrestling against the very hand of the almighty. And, and we're asking him, why have you made me like this? Why have you made my family like this? Why have you decided my life will be this way? That's what discontentment is. It's an accusing question to God. Why are you the way that you are? Proverbs 16, says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Right? We act. We we cast the lot in this instance. We make choices. We cast the lots. We serve our purpose. We do our part. But we need to understand the second part of that, right? The ultimate outcome of the events of life 
is not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And so when we complain against our circumstances, we're complaining against the one who has brought those circumstances to us. So that is the necessity of contentment, right? right? We need to be content because our discontentment is a sinful grumbling against the providential and good and wise hand of our God. That's the necessity of it. But third, we come to the secret of contentment. In Philippians 2.12, Paul says that he has learned something. And he says, here's what he learned. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, in this, in this passage in Philippians, Paul says he's learned the secret, but then he doesn't tell the secret, which is interesting. Uh, he still teaches us something, though. What does, he, what does he teach us there? He teaches us that contentment is something that is learned. Right? He says, I learned the secret. So contentment doesn't come to you magically. It comes to you through learning, through a process, through experience. And, and so Paul's, Paul's saying, look, I learned the secret through the hard knocks by actually losing everything and then emerging from the other side. And, and the person he came through the other side as is not the person that he thought he was going to start out his life as. And so the reason it's a secret is that the world around us doesn't have it. Uh, we learn something they don't learn and that they can't learn. We learn it God's way, that the, and the world has no comparison. Um, this is a contentment that doesn't root itself in a particular situation or scenario. You notice this about him. He says he's, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Right? That's, a lot of, that's a big difference. Plenty and hunger, those are the opposites. right? Abundance and need. In other words, he's learned to be, to, to whatever the situation is, contentment's going to be there. And until you learn contentment, regardless of the situation, you are always going to be vulnerable to unrest and grumbling. If you, if you ask most people what they're pursuing in life, I think the answer they would probably give is, I'm pursuing happiness. I'm pursuing happiness. I'm trying to be happy. People, perhaps they would say, I want to make other people happy. But even then, they would say, I'm doing that because it will make me happy to do that. Right? There's this endless uh, desire to pursue self-satisfaction. And, and Americans are experts at pursuing happiness. Nobody on the face of the earth has ever been more expert and successful at pursuing happiness. We are collectively the wealthiest, most comfortable, affluent people who have ever walked the face of planet earth. And yet we are somehow the unhappiest people who have ever walked the face of this planet. We have it so good, materially speaking, and yet this nation has rarely seen a season of such anger, discontentment, and rage. Why? It is because we are pursuing the God of happiness and he is betraying us. America is a land of deeply unhappy people pursuing happiness. And we have caught it and we are miserable. It has not filled our heart or our land with the completion that we thought it would bring. Contentment comes to us when we stop pursuing happiness for its own sake. You know, America is founded on the principle. It's contained in the Declaration of Independence. All people have a right to the pursuit of happiness, and yet happiness is a cruel taskmaster that is never satisfied. Nelson Rockefeller once was asked, how much money does it take to make a person happy? And he reportedly answered, just a little bit more. It's like that with happiness. 
It's like that with money. It's like that with happiness. It is why, what a cruel master to serve that can never be satisfied. We should not serve happiness. Happiness is a God who will destroy us if we serve him. Paul does not say that money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, right? It's not money itself that is the problem. It is the way that our hearts fixate onto it and attach to it that's the problem. It is the desire to be rich, according to the text, that becomes so dangerous to us. And Jesus warns us, it is It is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, not because money is destructive, but because of the way it grabs us and the way that we grab onto it. Money cannot be our God. Happiness cannot be our God. Both of them pursued as ends in themselves will betray us and leave us empty and miserable and, yes, steal away our sense of contentment. What is the secret of contentment that Paul learned? Well, it isn't that we should have no master, right? That's not the answer. Um, Bob Dylan was right. You got to serve somebody, right? The secret of contentment is to have the right master. He actually gave away the answer earlier. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul is pinpointing that word godliness, It's interesting. He doesn't say contentment is great gain. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. And, you know, in a moment where Paul has been around the Greco-Roman world, he has met with an awful lot of people. He's met the Stoics. And you know what? The Stoics would have said the exact same thing that Paul is saying here, except there's one thing they wouldn't have said, the part about godliness. (coughs) The Stoics said, if you can't control it, then you shouldn't want it. And as long as, you can't want, as long as you don't want something, then you can't be hurt by its, by its absence. So the Stoics have this very, you know, yield to, yield to uh, the world, yield to everything that takes place. Don't be unhappy with whatever you get. That's the Stoics. But Paul says, no, that's not good enough. That's not the Christian message. That's not Christian contentment. Instead, he says, it's godliness with contentment that's a great gain. Think about who your God might be, because godliness decides who your God is. Who's your God? Who do you serve? Who's your master? Who's the one that if you lost it, if you, uh, if you turned your back on it, that your very life and identity would be destroyed? Is it you? Is it money? Is it success? Is it your family? Is it certain relationships that you have? Is it your career? Which of these things, if you lost it, would your life be completely devastated, turned upside down, inside out, and you wouldn't know what you would do next? Because that's an an identifier of who your gods may be. Who are you serving? Who's your God? Blaise Pascal, I've been on on a roll here quoting Pascal lately. Pascal wrote this, Happiness can be found neither in ourselves nor in external things, but in God and ourselves as united to him. Happiness can be found neither in ourselves nor in external things, but in God and ourselves as united to him. And that's Paul's answer. That's Paul's answer. That's the secret of contentment. He says, letting the burden of Godhood be carried by the Lord and nothing else around us or in us. 
Letting God be God, learning to let the creator be the creator and let him define our life and letting his providence reign not only in our lives, but in our hearts so that we don't just accept what comes to us, but so that we love the outworking of his will. So that we could even say in our heart and in our mind, whatever comes to me tomorrow, whether it's good or bad, I am content with it because I know that he is good and he's wise and he's sovereign and none of it is an accident and I know he would never destroy me. Jesus Christ has come and he has, he has lived and he, he lived the perfect life and he rose again and he rose again for his people. And here is the thing. By trusting in Jesus, you are fundamentally secure at the most important and basic level possible. Whatever comes tomorrow, how devastating it may be, if you know Jesus, it means that you are secure. You have every reason for contentment, whatever happens. I could drop dead tomorrow. I could get very sick and be stuck in a hospital bed. And at my most holy, at my most Christ-like, I'm willing to accept it. Many of you have had to experience this. Many, many of you had to, have had to go through these cycles in life. Some of you have lost loved ones even this last year. You've had to face these things. And so we're not talking about accept the good things when they come your way. I am telling you that when the hard, hard things come, that he is good and you can trust him. There's no room for discontentment if Jesus has taken the security of our soul upon himself. Do you know this contentment? The most fundamental question is, do you know the Lord? That's the most basic. Do you know the Lord? Are you acquainted with Jesus? Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that when when God brings things your way, that these things aren't accidents and that he doesn't hate you and he doesn't despise you, but rather that he loves you and it really is the hand of a loving God by which these things come? That is the call today. The godliness that comes from Christ with contentment. And so the answer this morning is this. Pursue the Lord. Let him be God. Have him as your God. Ask him to work in your heart so that all the other gods, all the other idols, all the other things that you may be tempted to pursue so that they fade away. Love the Lord your God and serve him only. That is the secret of contentment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are people with restless hearts and souls. And you designed us to be that way. You designed us to seek rest. You designed us to seek satisfaction. You designed us to seek joy, but to seek them all in you. Not not for their own sakes. Ultimately, insofar as we have made other things our God, would you forgive us, O Lord, and give us a holy dissatisfaction with those things. Help us to see, to experience, and to learn the secret of contentment. That any other hope that we try to pursue will fail us. Teach us to live under your powerful, fatherly, providential hand and to receive all that you bring our way with open hands and grateful hearts. Lord, teach us contentment. We ask it in Jesus' name.